You're listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit CiboloCreek.com. You guys came back. That's exciting to me. This topic that we're in, it's, it's touchy. It's a little sensitive. It's, um, it's a bit uncomfortable. It can be a little disturbing. You know why? Because all of us have different stories. All of us have different experiences. We grew up in different homes. We grew up in different neighborhoods. We grew up in different um, economic situations. We, we, we grew up in different schools. And so we have different perspectives. We have different opinions. We have different beliefs. We have different feelings. And we have different passions. It's a touchy subject, and there's a lot of landmines for a guy like me to step into. And I think of Jesus, and he's described in the Gospels as full of grace and full of truth. Jesus had this remarkable way, almost like he was divine or something. He had this remarkable way of being direct and talk to the truth and say things that were hard for people to hear. But he also had this amazing capacity to do it in a very gracious and loving heart. His intentions were to help. And I, I long to be like Jesus. So, week three of this series of messages that we've entitled Devil's Advocate. And for those of you who may just be joining us, we, we know generally how that term is used. Devil's Advocate is the person in a meeting who takes kind of the contrarian point of view and challenges the current thinking. Uh, but we're looking at the term itself, the devil's advocate, and trying to make sense of it and, and understand kind of its dimensions in our life. And, and so uh, the devil's advocate, an advocate is a representative, a defender, an ambassador, a spokesperson. And, and I'm coming from the proposition that the devil has representatives, a defender, an ambassador that has a powerful influence in our lives. The devil, God's celestial enemy and perpetrator of all things evil, has an extremely powerful and persuasive spokesperson in our world and its culture. Now, here's just a, a short list of the many things that contribute to culture. All sorts of dynamics of, of the life that we're surrounded by, from language to the heritage that we grew up with, is all part of culture. And I, I want to clarify something so I just make sure that we're all on the same page. Is I'm not saying for a moment that everything about culture is evil. Because there's many beautiful, noble, wonderful, inspiring, helpful, and hopeful things about culture. But I, I do want to raise our awareness that there are dimensions of culture that are extremely dangerous. And that's what I want us to be aware of. 
the most powerful movers and shakers, some of the most prominent voices, the biggest platforms, the most powerful movers and shakers of culture actively advocate for many of the values, the beliefs, and the behaviors that the devil seeks to promote as the author of evil. That's what I want us to be aware of. Another way we could say that is contemporary culture is often the devil's advocate for all things contrary to how God wants human beings to live, what God invites us to enjoy as human beings. And Satan is opposed to that, and he uses culture at times to influence many, many of us in the wrong direction. So we read verses like this in the Bible. Uh, Peter says to the early church, be alert, like be on guard, pay attention, be sober-minded, like this is serious stuff. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, a fierce lion, and his intent is to devour, is to do harm, is to create destruction. Another passage of scripture, 2 Corinthians, for Satan himself masquerades, disguises himself as a messenger of things that on the surface appear to be good and right and wholesome, just and hopeful. When, when you get down behind them and see their ugly underbelly, it's not hopeful and it's not helpful and it's not as it appears. And we have to be discerning of that. So what culture often celebrates is progress. This is a big word these days. We're progressing as a society. We're we're progressing as humans. What culture often celebrates is progress. We have to be aware is nothing more than the slow adoption of evil. Now, at great risk of offending, and that's not my intent, but I just... I want to put something out here on the table for all of us to acknowledge, to at least, at least recognize the categories as a way of being more discerning about the things that are coming at us every day. Okay, you ready? You're like, oh. That's my staff. They're like, oh. When the pursuit of truth perpetuates even more deception... When the call for love leads to the acceptance of hurt, when the cause of justice resorts to even greater injustice, when the demand for equality stokes a more sophisticated inequality, when the quest for progress leads even further away from just basic common sense, We have to understand we're being deceived by the master of deception, the devil. Did you understand that? Those are powerful principles to keep in mind as you watch television, as you surf the internet, as you participate on social media, as you read books, as you listen to discussions at work and in your neighborhood and at school. Those are important principles to keep in mind because here's the deal. Satan is the master of division. He loves to tear things apart. He loves to tear marriages apart. He loves to tear families apart. He loves to tear neighborhoods apart and schools apart. He loves to tear churches apart. 
So we must be very discerning about what it is that we're reading and adopting for causes and lifestyles when in fact they're making life more difficult. So I want to show you a photo. I don't know what it is about this photo. It comes up in my world every once in a while. And every time it does, it disturbs me. And I find myself looking at it for a long time. And then I'll walk away, I'll get on with my day, and hours later, this photo still haunts me. It's this photo right here. It's a photo of soldiers. They're in a landing craft, or what's called a Higgins boat. These kind of boats were used by the thousands in all shapes and sizes during the Second World War. What would happen is boats carrying thousands of troops would, would come just offshore beyond the range of gunfire. Soldiers would climb down cargo nets into a Higgins boat and they'd make their way to shore. You get about 36 soldiers in one of these boats. When I see this photo, I always think about two things. The first one is I think, I think about how young those soldiers look, particularly this young man right here, because he looks like he's about 14. Now, he's probably not, but he's probably not a whole lot older than that. 17, 18, 19, much of the Second World War was fought by soldiers between 18 and 20 years old. And we know from history that many young American men lied about their age in order to go off and fight in the war because of a sense of patriotism or because of economic hardship. But I look at these young men and I wonder about their names. I wonder where they're from. It seems that every movie I've ever watched about the Second World War, one of these young men, probably this guy right here, he's from the Bronx. Brash, kind of brazen personality. One of these young men, he's from Iowa or Nebraska, the Midwest, and he grew up on a farm. One of these young men is from Texas, and one of them is from California. That's sort of the cross-section of the cultures of the United States of America. And I wonder about their stories. I wonder how many of them grew up in the country and how many of them grew up in the big city. I wonder, I wonder about their parents, moms and dads, sisters and brothers, waiting at home, just longing for a letter to let them know that they were still okay. So the first thing I always think about when I look at this picture is their story. The second thing that I always wonder about this picture is that Although none of them were probably saying it out loud, every one of them was thinking it, and they was thinking the question, how long will I live? They knew the score. They knew what they were walking into. They could see over the edge of the boat. On historic battles like D-Day off the coast of France, 
thousands, tens of thousands of these young men made their way from ships to shore. And they knew what they were walking into. They could see the disadvantage they were at because they were coming in on the shores, the low ground. And there was no place to retreat once they were on shore because it was just an ocean behind them. And the boat had already gone back to get more soldiers because part of the strategy of D-Day was to overwhelm the Germans with more soldiers than they could handle. But they could also look into the hillsides, the cliffs of Normandy, France, and know that the Germans had been there for months and they had concrete bunkers all along those cliff sides and they had these enormous guns and they were raining bombs and bullets down on those soldiers as fast as they could, literally mowing down soldiers by the hundreds. We know from history that some of those boats would get hung up on sandbars. And the skipper, concerned about taking gunfire, would just drop the front gate and the soldiers were commanded to unload. And many of them would unload in waters that were over their heads. They were carrying 70-pound packs of personal provisions. They were in battle, hard helmets, combat boots. They were carrying a rifle and at least one sidearm. And we know from history that thousands of them drowned in the waters before they ever made it to shore. Those who did make it to shore, some of them lived mere minutes, if they were lucky. Others lived a few hours. Some lived to see another day. And some, some made it home to the farm in Iowa. And those who did, they had been responsible through their heroic efforts to literally save the lives of millions of people from the onslaught of fascism as it moved its way across Europe. Now this will be a leap for some of you. But you just have to understand it's a little bit of how a pastor looks at his congregation. It's a little of our heart and how it's shaped. You see, I look at this photo and I see you. I see you and your spouse. I see your kids. Your college-aged son or daughter who's off at school. Your high schooler. Your elementary school child. I see you. And every day that you and the people that you love wake up, right there on the edge of bed waiting for you is culture. It's on your phone, your television. It's in the reading curriculum at school. It's in your friendships. It's in the movies that you watch, the podcasts that you listen to, the politics that you adhere to. You are literally engulfed in culture. You, every day, arrive on a different battlefield. And it's a war for your heart. It's a war for your mind. It's a war for your soul. Maybe that's why Paul writes to the early church and he says, finally, whatever you do, be strong in the Lord. 
Shore up your relationship with Christ. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of everything that God offers so that you can take your stand against what? The devil's schemes. All of those deceptive tactics that he uses in culture to seduce and destroy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark culture and against the spiritual forces that are at work in a heavenly realm that most Christians, most people have no clue about. And we live our lives naively about all that's happening around us on a plane of life we can't touch and we can't taste and we can't see, but it is real. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, shore up your faith so that when the day of evil comes, and it comes every day, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, you keep standing. Our cultural landscape these days, listen to me, Our cultural landscape these days is full of explosive landmines that can be stepped on in every imaginable way. At home, at work, at school, in your community, and in your church. You want to know what those landmines look like? I promise we're only going to talk about one of them. so that I can live to see another day. (laughs) But talk about a society and a culture full of very explosive landmines that threaten the soul, particularly of a Christian. Here they are. Just name one. Every one of them. Every one of them is evidence that our culture is shifting dramatically. It's moving at supersonic speed. We could, we could just take the first one, abortion. For decades now, there's been laws in the United States allowing or permitting the legal practice of killing a child. Now, we could just talk about that But our laws to this point have protected a child after a certain number of weeks. But in at least three states of the union, there are laws presently on the table to consider allowing a doctor or a mother to allow an infant who's been born, birthed, out of the womb, on the table, and consider that either I don't want it or it's not going to thrive, and therefore I can let it die. Our culture is shifting. And it's happening so fast. And here's what I see happening. Okay, as a pastor looking at his culture, the world that we live in, here's what I see is so disturbing to me is that it seems like our culture is working overtime right now to remove any social stigma for the acceptance, the approval, and the applause of a lot of things that are honestly morally repugnant, and all it is is an attempt to normalize it. Did you understand that? 
Say it again. What our culture is doing is working overtime to remove any stigma related to lifestyles and beliefs, practices, values that are in essence morally repugnant and asking us to approve them, applaud them, and accept them. And we as Christians, we step into this every day that we leave our house. But the scriptures talk about this, has been talking about it for centuries. Paul writes, having lost all sensitivity, they, the world, the the culture, they've given themselves over. They've just resigned themselves to a sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. The markers keep moving. And here we are, Christians. And we have a place in this. Every day, followers of Jesus wade into the fray of contemporary culture, this raging battlefield of opposing beliefs and behaviors, many of which are completely contrary to the life Jesus has called us to live as his disciples. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought when Jesus Christ is revealed as his coming. This is serious stuff. So here's the call of Christians. For every person in this room, every one of you listening to me online who professes to be a follower of Jesus, listen very clearly. As obedient children, we are instructed, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you, God, through his son Jesus Christ, just as he who called you is holy, So be holy in all that you do, for it is written, established in God's eternal word. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, I'm holy. If you are to be my people, you must be holy like I am holy. That's our calling. So all through the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, we run into this word holy or this idea of holiness. It's so interesting to me to have watched this sort of understanding as I've uh, observed it in the church for many, many years. For many people, uh, perhaps for most Christians, they look at the word holy and they perceive it as, well, that's for other people. Because in most people's minds, the word holy means to be morally perfect. And they say, most people say, well, that's not me. I, I can't do that. I got my story. I got my past. I got my struggles, my addictions. I got my things. I'm, I'm certainly not morally pure. So that must be for somebody else. That must be for pastors and priests and monks and missionaries. Some sort of an exclusive kind of Christian And the average person attending church does not see any direct relationship to a responsibility of God's calling on their life to be holy. But let me show you 
a pattern in scripture. To the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's you, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere, through all centuries, everywhere, who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. First Thessalonians, for God did not call us to be impure. He called us to live a holy life. God, he saved us and he called us. I'm beckoning you. I'm inviting you to live a holy life. What kind of people ought we to be, Peter asked. Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives. The Apostle Paul writes to the, book of, uh, to the church at Ephesus, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to do what? To be holy. Do you understand that the God of the universe, creator and sustainer of all that exists, he called you you, your name, he called you and invited you as one of his dearly loved children, would you please be holy? What's interesting about those passages is none of them were written to pastors or priests, monks or missionaries. They were written to Christ followers. Every single person who's invited Christ into their life as their savior, you have been called by the God of the universe to be holy. You say, wow, what, what is holiness? Yeah, what is it? Is it moral purity? No, it's not. Here's why I say that. There's a long list of items in the scriptures that are ordained as holy. God pronounces them to be holy. Here's a list. There's a mountain in the Bible that's pronounced holy. How in the world does a mountain be morally pure? That's my question. A city, the city of Jerusalem is the holy city. How in the world does a, a, a place with streets and buildings, how does it be morally pure? Holidays, celebrations, certain foods, clothes, buildings, rooms, the holy of holies, there was the temple which was holy. Then there was rooms within the holies of holies. It was called um, the, holy, uh, the holy place and then the holy of holies. And then there was like the holiest room. How does a room be morally pure? Furniture, utensils. We see individuals who are recognized in the scriptures as holy and yet we know their life. We see their story and they were anything but morally pure. The nation of Israel, God's holy people, they went through generations where they were so far from God there was nothing morally pure about them. We see words that were pronounced to be holy. The Jews couldn't even say them out loud. They were so sacred. So what is holy? Holy means to set apart or to be separate. That's what the word means. You drill down into it a little bit deeper. Holy means to set apart from something for the exclusive use of something else. You get that? 
The dimension of holiness is that somehow one thing is removed from all the others and used exclusively in a certain way. So what we find in holiness is there's this discussion of those things over there and then these things. And those things, those are the ones that there's most of. They're common, they're popular, everybody knows about them. They're always in the majority. But things that are holy, things that are holy, yeah, they're kind of rare. You don't see a lot of them. They're uncommon. They're, they're very unique when up against everything else that surrounds them. And what we find is that those things that are holy, those people that are holy, they are always in the minority. You with me? That a true follower of Jesus Christ who's pursuing a life of holiness, you will not always be popular. There will be parts about your life that are incredibly uncommon. Very different from your family. Very different from your classmates. Very different from the people at work. Very different from the people in your neighborhood. That's a part of what it means to be holy. Holiness has the idea of being distinct or distinctive, different, peculiar, not in a weird way, just that it stands out in contrast to the rest. It's unique. It's about being devoted. It's about being dedicated or devout in what it is that, that you pursue. It's about being exclusive. There's a part of holiness that does exclude you from the rest. It's about being designated, common, and sacred. We read in the Old Testament, remember the Sabbath and do what with it? Keep it holy. What does that mean? It means do whatever you need to to protect the unique and sacred purpose of the Sabbath in a life. Well, guess what? You, me, as Christ, we're called to be holy. We're called to be distinct to be unique, to have a level of devotion about our walk with God that's different from the rest, that is uncommon, even among other Christians who are just churchgoers. A holy person pursuing a relationship with Christ has a certain sacred calling on their life, and it looks like this. Holiness is the call to be different from all those around you who adopt a life defined by their unholy culture. And sadly, millions of Christians adopt their culture in hundreds of ways. Holiness requires a courageous faith in God's way of living and refuses to be intimidated by those who mock it. Look at this passage of scripture. We almost only read it in regards to marriage, which is very unfortunate. It, was, it wasn't even written in the context of marriage. I'm not saying it's not a good verse for marriage. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it wasn't what its original purpose was. Look at this passage of scripture. Do not be yoked together with people who hold different beliefs about morality and ethics and lifestyles. Do not partner with them. Do not get into a commitment with them. Do not be yoked together for what, does, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? They're, they're completely different. 
what fellowship, what relationship, what um, camaraderie can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and the devil? There is none. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God? Who's that? That's you and me. What agreement is there between temples of God and idols? Our culture is literally delivering hundreds of idols for people to worship. For we are the temple of the living God. As he said, I will live with them and I'll walk among them and I'll be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, now listen to this. These are hard words for the church. Come out from them and be separate. And what I see is that so many Christians, they want to be liked and they want to be popular, and they want to be accepted, and they want to be applauded, and so they don't live a very distinctive life. Their faith is often left very quiet so as not to draw attention to themselves or not to draw attention to the fact that they profess to be a Christian. And you know what? You know what? This creates a very difficult tension because on one hand, now listen to me. Are you listening? On one hand, we're called to be separate, to live these holy lives of distinction. And yet, at the same time, we're called to love our world, to love our neighbors, our family, our friends, the people that we work with and go to school with who hold very different Views and perspectives and opinions and live very different lifestyles. We're called to love them. And I'm going to talk about that tension next Sunday. Because it requires an enormous amount of wisdom. Let's look at this. A Christian who endeavors to be holy has a different set of beliefs than most people around them. They have different morality. It's amazing to watch the number of Christ followers who have adopted an entire set of practices when it comes to sexuality. And it looks just like their world. And I'm not talking teenagers. I'm talking a grown, mature adults who've decided that sex outside of marriage is completely permissible. And it's contrary to the holiness of God. Different values than those around you, different priorities, different attitudes, different behaviors. Even when we hold to different, even when they're mocked as antiquated, Christians, you're so, that's so out of date. Nobody thinks like that anymore. Nobody does that anymore. Even when it's, a, it's, it's mocked as being ignorant, it's like, seriously, come on, we've evolved science. Look what it's telling us. Um, it's wrong. Or at times, much of what we hold to as ambassadors of the gospel will be viewed as hateful. It doesn't matter how much love may be behind it. It's viewed as being hateful. But a Christian who's called to be holy stands his ground.
So we read this. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of living according to God's righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of your relationship with Jesus. Jesus, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. It's painful. But rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you they will persecute you. Jesus said, please, hear my words. You, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it ever be made salty again? If we lose the distinctive edge of holiness, we don't add flavor to our culture. It is no longer good for anything except basically to be disregarded, thrown out. Jesus said, you You, disciple of Jesus, you're the light of the world in a very dark place, a town built on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You don't hide it. Instead, they put it up on a stand. They put it there for it to be seen. It gives light to everyone in the house, Jesus says, in the same way, Christ's followers. Let your light, the light of Jesus, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and end up giving glory to your Father in heaven. Last month, I was in Wisconsin for the biggest race of my life. And I stayed with dear friends who've known me since I was 18 years old. So, what, five or six years. Um, They've known me since I was 18. They live in this neighborhood. It's not a subdivision. It's just about 12 neighbors all have a fair share of land, wonderful houses. And this neighborhood is tight. They get together for picnics and barbecues. They have a book club. They watch out for each other's property. They're really close friends. And a few months ago, they were all together, and a discussion came up, a very delicate kind of fragile social discussion that has a lot of feeling behind it. And they got put into a position where very graciously, very humbly, very thoughtfully, they had to declare sort of where they stood on the issue as Christians. The next day, a neighbor came to visit them to tell them, yeah, we're not going to be able to hang out together anymore. They got a couple of phone calls. Hey, we just want to let you guys know what you said the other day made us really uncomfortable. I I don't think we're going to be able to hang out anymore. The rest have just frozen them out. That's the price of holiness. It comes with the territory of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about how we lovingly move toward it next Sunday. But I can't lie to you. We must be prepared. When I was a kid, we sang a a song a lot. 
you're probably familiar with it. And it went like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Because there's no turning back. There's no turning back. The world, the world behind me, the cross before me, there's no turning back. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ in our contemporary culture. I'm just curious who's with me. Thank you. Let's stand together. Our Father, in your love and your grace, you told us to be alert and to be very sober-minded. That while you grant us this rich and full and delightful, joy-filled life, there's parts of it that are hard and heavy and serious and dangerous, and we must be very careful God, I pray, I, from the bottom of my heart with everything I've got, I pray that eyes will be opened and ears will finally hear, maybe for the first time, you have called each Christ follower in this room and online, you have called us to be holy. And that in all of the courage and the confidence of the Christ who lives within us, I pray, Father, that we will step out of our houses every day and go to our schools and go to our workplaces and go to our neighborhoods and go to those places that we go and that we will take the light of Christ in us in a very dark world. God, watch over families, marriages, students, people in the workplace, teachers and coaches and mentors and bosses. Watch over them, Father, and protect them under your mighty hand from the dangers of culture that would threaten to seduce their soul and take them far away from you. I pray, Father, that you will raise up in this congregation an army of people who are willing to follow Jesus with no turning back. I pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. See you next Sunday.